You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hey, Will. Hey, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Common Descent Podcast, episode 13. Lucky 13. Lucky right number 13. 13 was always my favorite number back when I was of a mind to have a favorite number. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I remember it because of movie references and all the weird stuff around it, but I always liked it because it's a... I, I like once you start getting weird prime numbers above double digits, you know, or into the double digits. I don't know why. I've found prime numbers always really funny. It's a cool number. We are eagerly anticipating episode 17. Woohoo! Woohoo! But for now, episode 13 is a very special episode. Once again, something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only is our topic a little different, today on the episode we are talking about fossil preparation. Yeah. So we're not talking about, you know, a, a group of life or in a specific event. We're talking about methodology within uh, specifically the field of paleontology. And this is this is after the fact on everything else we've talked about. Yes, <laughs> after all the other after after all this stuff has happened. But it's also a special episode because it is another guest episode. Mm-hmm. This time, an interview with a friend of ours. Yeah, a really close friend from the fossil site we used to work at. Yeah, the Gray Fossil Site, which we mention a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, that interview will be coming up. In fact, we have two interviews with. A friend of ours, and then the secondary interview is with a couple of guests that are so special we didn't even expect to have them on. It's, this is two interviews for the price of one, listeners. You cannot <laughs> beat this deal. So later on in this episode, after the news, you will be hearing from our friend and uh, fossil preparator extraordinaire, Sean Hogroot. He's a pretty awesome guy. He's, he's a cool guy. And then after that, two of his preparator extraordinaire in training, mm-hmm. uh, Shaley and Davis, all yeah. from the Gray site. But first, as usual, a couple things to announce before we even get to the news. We did not announce this last episode. We could have, but we didn't. And there's a reason why we didn't. Our Patreon, which we launched at the beginning of June with the release of episode 10, has officially hit the first goal. Cue applause. Apply and play the applause track. Yes, in the background. It's awesome. Like it's this incredible, everybody. So thanks to everyone who became a patron, because that's awesome. Yes, hitting the first goal means that Patreon, as long as this maintains, is official. Basically, paying for the upkeep of the podcast, mm-hmm. all of our subscriptions, and all of our you know, yearly or monthly things that we yep. be doing. We now can keep doing them. Indeed. If you've been keeping an eye on us, you'll know that we actually hit this before the last episode was released. But the reason we haven't announced it earlier is because the month hadn't ticked over. Yeah. And that's when all the payments go through. And we didn't want to count <laughs> our Patreon money <laughs> before it hatched. Yep. So just to make sure, um, huge thanks to all of our patrons. Yes. Huge thanks to all of our listeners, to anybody out there who's, sh- you know... Telling your friends about us, getting the word out there, even if you're just listening by yourself. Huge thanks. We do it for you. Let's keep doing it forever. Yeah, the the pace at which this has been going has been remarkable. And yes. I, I, it never fails to floor me 
how quickly our numbers grow and the responses we keep getting. So thank you again. It's it's great. Indeed. Speaking of numbers, today, uh, this is uh, we record our episodes a week ahead before they're released. Today on Podbean, our total download numbers surpassed 5,000 downloads, Woo! which is so cool. I don't know what that equates to in direct number of listeners. I assume 10 or 20,000. Yeah. I mean, listeners. it's, yeah, it's, that's logical. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, you typically only get a measurement of a, a smaller portion of the actual <laughs> represent, you know, so that's, that's just simple math. Just, just simple math. <laughs> uh, regardless, it's a lot, a lot of downloads. Lots of people are listening to us. We love it. Keep it up. We love you. It's, that's all. It, you guys are amazing because this is this has been we knew this was going to be fun when we first wanted to do it but you all have made it so much better than we ever anticipated indeed and now the news on to the news on to the news this episode we've got some talk about dinosaurs and extinctions and things that are even cooler than dinosaurs yeah we got we got a pretty good spread go ahead will so for my first one this does not have a direct fossil discovery or uh, specimen. It's a more overall look at a concept for one fossil group. Uh, so I, I like the, the title of this. This article has been the same on all the news sites. And it's sticking your neck out. How did plesiosaurs swim with such long necks? Yeah. And I like, I like the title. But it's basically <laughs> looking at how were these... Aquatic reptiles, plesiosaurs are the the famous ones with those long snake-like necks, but then a bulbous body and four flippers. Yes. And so the question, how did they swim with these long necks sticking off the front of them? Mm -hmm. And so a PhD student decided to look at it using technology. <laughs> and uh, her name is Pernil Trollson. Mm -hmm. uh, she's from Liverpool, John Moores University in the UK. And she took a, a very simplified 3D model of a plesiosaur, you know, just good enough to, to represent the overall body, and then put it into a computer simulation to simulate uh, hydro uh, fluid dynamics. Yeah. And she would alter the curve of the neck, and she would have it straight, and she would look at how each one affected it to see, you know, how exactly does this body move through water? And this is a cool question because these animals have been kind of a mystery. And so yeah. a bit more background for everyone. These were marine reptiles that were around during the Mesozoic, the age of the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. They heavily dominated the seas. They were one of the main predators back then. Yeah. But we have no modern day equivalent. Like the closest thing we have to them is a sea turtle and the fact that they're flippered reptiles. Yes. But these had four fairly equivalent flippers, so they were definitely swimming differently than a turtle, and then they had this long neck. And so how they were swimming and how they were hunting has always been a you know, a bit of a mystery just because they're so odd. Yeah, they're one of these interesting cases of an extinct creature that we really don't have anything like today. Yeah. What she found was that they swam best with it straightforward. But any curve to the neck immediately start, which makes sense, but immediately started yeah. dropping the efficiency. And so what she, you know, one of the conclusions she drew is that this probably means that they were not swimming, you know, they were not aggressive swimmers. Right, right. They're not like swimming around, snapping at exactly. prey at high that, speeds. They were probably very 
energy-efficient, patient hunters, and she used best two animals, crocodiles and snakes, as examples. Yeah. In that they were likely sitting at the surface, you're just floating, or sitting on the bottom, or some you know, maybe in between, but that they were sitting still and using this now long, maneuverable neck to ambush or sneak up on or just move quickly and grab prey just with the neck, but they weren't actually physically moving their body after the prey. Interesting. I imagine that if you were swimming at high speeds and then tried to snap at something by moving your neck, you'd probably put a lot of strain mm -hmm. on your neck. Exactly. Uh, and this is cool, and I'd, I'd heard stuff or ideas like this before that the idea was maybe that with a skinny neck and a smaller head, they could almost sneak up and get within a school of fish to snap something up without the fish noticing the giant body that's way away. Right, it looks like a small creature. Mm -hmm. The yeah. cool thing is I've heard a somewhat modern equivalent in that there are some people, because another animal that's alive today but is a mystery exactly as to how and what they feed on are giant squids mm -hmm. and colossal squids, and some people have put forth that maybe they do a very similar thing, that they either dangle their... The long tentacles are the two that have just the suction cups on the end, while the eight right. are the arms that have suction cups all the way down that they could yep. dangle their long tentacles out among fish and grab a fish without, you know, and you know without bringing their whole body in close to the prey. Interesting. And so they may have been doing a similar thing. Uh she was saying that her next steps will be to actually analyze the vertebrae and get more detailed looks at the actual anatomy of a plesiosaur to make her model all the more accurate on what the flexibility of the neck would be. Right, right. Very cool stuff. Yeah, I I like stuff like this because we don't typically think about it, but, you know, when you just have the bones, those don't actually tell you how fast or how strong or how the animal is moving. Yeah. You have to do these sort of tests to draw those conclusions. Indeed. Thank goodness for these intrepid researchers doing all them physics and maths. Yeah, they get to do the computer stuff, uh, and we just get to enjoy it. <laughs> it's a good example of biomechanics. Mm -hmm. which we haven't talked a whole lot about. But these days especially, there's a lot of computational biomechanics yes. looking at how prehistoric creatures moved, how their physiology uh, may have allowed them to function, all sorts of cool physics meets paleontology kind of stuff. Well, it sort of goes back to the, the last episode when we were talking about the difference between you know relative and absolute dating is it's very easy to look at an animal and go, oh, this was a fast animal. You know, we can tell by the length of the limbs mm -hmm. and the way the joints are set up and the muscle attachments. This is very obviously a fast animal in the line of rabbits and hares or cheetahs or horses. Right. But by the biomechanics is where you can come in and go, okay, but how fast? You know, yes. what, what speeds <laughs> do we think it could reach? Let's put a number on it or at least right. a range. How, how injured do the people in my horror movie need to be for this <laughs> chase scene to be scary? Yes. <laughs> and so it's it's neat because it's, you know, it's very easy to tell just the general habits or, you know, sometimes it is the general habits of an animal. But how much they can do is a whole nother question. Indeed. Next up on the news, we're going to stay in the oceans, but fast forward uh, a whole bunch of millions of years mm -hmm. to the beginning of the Pleistocene epoch, the beginning of the Ice Age. Catalina Pimiento, a researcher, and her colleagues published a study in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution in which, and this is just such a cool thing to be able to say, they discovered a mass extinction. <laughs> that's, that's not every day you hear that. No. 
That's pretty cool. So what Pimiento and friends did was around this transitional time between the Pliocene and Pleistocene epochs, like I said, the beginning of the Ice Age, which meant dramatic shifts in climate, dramatic shifts in sea level, they looked through all the reports that are out for fossils of marine organisms around that time and found a pattern that hasn't been noted before, that there were a lot of extinctions around this time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Famously, you know, it's been known that there were certain groups of whales suffered around this time. Megalodon went extinct at this time. So this is, you know, people have known that there were some shifts at, at, at this transition, but what they found was that the extinction rates in large marine mam- uh, large marine animals, marine megafauna, were about three times higher than standard extinction rates throughout most of the Cenozoic, with 36% of large marine genera disappearing at this transition, including more than half of the large marine mammals, more than a third of sea turtles and seabirds, and about 10% of the sharks. Wow. So this, you know, this wasn't a, a, a KPG extinction, right? It wasn't like a huge, huge one. And it wasn't, it was on, apparently only in the oceans and apparently mm-hmm. mostly for large animals. But among that grouping, this was a pretty significant event. Uh, you, you can even, you could compare it to the end Pleistocene megafauna extinction on land where we lost mammoths and woolly rhinos and saber-toothed cats and stuff. What they found when they looked closer is their their thought here is that this was probably related to the loss of coastal habitats as sea levels were shifting and you lost a lot of nutritional value in coastal habitats. They found that you lost a lot of ecological roles. So a lot of the extinctions sort of were fulfilling ecological roles that weren't filled back in. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of the others were changed out, so new thing, new species moved in to fill in the roles that were left over. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, lot of shifting happened. And then, prob- perhaps not all that surprising, the most, the hardest hit groups were large, warm-blooded, high-activity animals. Mm-hmm. Whales, uh, manatees and dugongs, and then, of course, megalodon was a large, high-activity animal as well. The things that they've pointed out that I thought were very interesting, one, of course, is this... uh, Actually, both of these tie into our Episode 8 discussion of conservation paleontology Mm -hmm. that uh, Catalina Pimiento points out first that this is a demonstration that marine megafauna have been more susceptible to environmental changes in the past than we've realized. Interesting. Which has implications for today. And, and I'm going to quote this one directly because I love it, the marine megafaunal communities that humans inherited were already altered and functioning at a diminished diversity. Much like on land, yeah. the world we're living in is broken. We are, we are fresh off of... Now it looks like two major mm-hmm. large animal mass extinctions. Yeah, it's once again the the assumption that what you're used to seeing is has always been the norm is mm-hmm. not usually the case. 
Yeah. And that goes extra for the animals we're used to. The reason everything seems like it was bigger back in the day is because a lot of those big things just died. Yeah, we just lost them. And with them, we lost major ecological roles. I I think we may have mentioned in episode eight that the loss of things like woolly mammoths Mm -hmm. is a loss of keystone herbivores. Mm -hmm. That nothing has come in to replace that, that piece of the ecosystem. So you're missing a function that the ecosystem evolved to have. Up until very recently, North America, Europe, and Asia functioned like Africa. Mm-hmm. Lots of large carnivores, lots of large herbivores running around together, and we've lost most of them. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's really interesting stuff to get that glimpse on how different things were, especially when it's recent. Like you expect yes. the time of the dinosaurs to be different, but when it's like, no, just a few million years ago, things were oh, yeah. vastly different, and we. Just missed it. Yeah, this was two and a half million years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we 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 almost you know were swimming alongside these animals, but not quite. They they went out right before we started showing up. Cool. So speaking of big things with big teeth, yeah. My next article is the best article I think I've read in just about ever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the coolest things that I've seen in quite some time. And one of the news articles writing about it was actually written by our own David Moscato. Hey, I know that guy. Yeah, no, he's pretty popular. He's a guy, I, I like his stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, you, you, should, you should meet him sometime. Yeah. <laughs> it's, this is about a new Mesozoic crocodilian that was found from the Middle Jurassic on Madagascar. We should be clear, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to criticize some headlines later. Yes. Not a crocodilian. <laughs> it's yeah, it's not actually a crocodilian. You'll see lots of say crocodile. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. so this is we're uh this is actually so going back to our, our second episode, we're we're in the meso crocodilians. Yeah, we're in crocodilla forms. We're mm-hmm. outside of proper crocodilia. It's a really cool discovery and it's got a fairly interesting history. So this was a large crocodilla form that was found on Madagascar and it's recently been identified as being related to crocs because when it was first discovered they weren't able to tell they knew it was an archosaur but they couldn't Mm -hmm. tell who it was closer to because its teeth are so big and fearsome they thought it very well likely could have been a theropod on the magnitude of t-rex yes so this (laughs) is very cool now it's its name is Long and crazy, so I'm only going to say it the one time. <laughs> <laughs> I can only do this trick once. I know, right? So everyone, you enjoy it, because after this, it's I'm not doing it. So this crocodilomorph's name is Razanon Drongobi Sakalave, and it's a very cool specimen. So it initially was discovered in early 2000s, 2001, 2003. They found the pre-maxilla and a number of... or one half of the premaxilla, that's the upper section of the front of the snout, mm-hmm. with a lot of teeth. And they were able to name it, because even though they only had a few pieces and they couldn't tell what archosaur it was closest to, it was so weird and different that they knew it was something unique. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to call it Rosanna from now on, because that's yes. a lot easier. Yes, <laughs> that is seven fewer syllables. Yeah, it's it's such a long name. And recently... They found a couple more pieces because a lot of pieces of this was already in collections 
at a, a couple of different natural history museums. Mm-hmm. And some of them had been discovered like back in the 1970s. Yeah. And now they have a complete right premaxilla, a partial left dentary, that's the bottom jaw, and mm-hmm. a couple of pieces of the maxilla, which is the upper section uh, behind the nose that holds teeth. Yeah. And they have enough, um, you know, a few more teeth pieces to say that it is a crocodiliform and to even do some studies and place it within a group, which puts it within the uh, Notosuchians. Mm-hmm. Now, these are the ones we talked about in episode two that were the, I'm not going to say actual mammal mimics, but were the very terrestrial, complicated toothed crocodiliforms that had herbivores and seemingly omnivores and very small foraging crocodiles as well as larger terrestrial predatory crocodiles. These were these crocodilian, those crocodiliforms that seem to be going a very similar route that dinosaurs, but also mammals, yeah. you know, were eventually and were going. This one is the oldest and very likely the biggest. Yeah. It has, from what they can tell, what they estimate about a meter long skull, which mm-hmm. doesn't sound too big. You know, when we're talking about other crocodilians uh, and, and a crocodile uh, morph ancestors and so forth that have, you know, six foot skulls. Yeah. But this would have been a very s- wide and tall and, you know, bulky skull. You know, think of it much more like a bulldog or a Rottweiler than a typical long-nosed crocodilian. Yeah. And the teeth ranged up to be about six inches long, had serrations on either side, which were very, which are very similar looking to T-Rexes, but the serrations are actually bigger. Yep. <laughs> and so this was a big terrestrial predatory crocodiliform with teeth that suggest it was most likely crunching through bones and other mm-hmm. hard parts of the body that made it one of the largest predators of that era, of that time period. Yeah. Which is so cool. Yeah, this was a time before you had the big, big dinosaurs like Allosaurus, right? This is Middle Jurassic. So mm-hmm. this is before, you know, you don't quite have a lot of these big, iconic carnivorous dinosaurs yet. This, the 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 artistic reconstruction of this animal that was going out with the press release shows it feeding on a sauropod. Yep. Like this was, this would have been a really cool, very interesting animal. And it's, it really is like a four-legged T-Rex is like, I mean, just looking yeah. at the snout, the first time I saw a picture of the snout, I had, I had to sit there and look to see if that was a partial theropod or crocodilian of some sort, because... It's so beefy and massive. Yeah, it's it's a really cool. The 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 only crocodiliforms that have approached this size are either aquatic mm-hmm. or were the very biggest yes. classic Dinosuchus sarcosuchus long snouted semi aquatic crocodilians and crocodiliforms. This guy was, and this guy was way before all of that. Yeah. So it's it's something really special. It's and it's cool because I like when we get glimpses of this stuff. It's the same way I feel about the the terror birds, the big terrestrial predatory birds that came after the dinosaurs in the early ages of the mammals is things like this and that gave us a glimpse of like had things just gone slightly differently, <laughs> we may have had a land dominated by crocodilomorphs or we could have had giant birds instead of cheetahs. Yes. You know, th- there what was a, a time 
when it was not clear who was going to take the reins of the Earth. <laughs> and that's super interesting. Uh, the reason that I was quick to make sure we were specific about our taxonomy with crocodilians versus crocodiliforms is one of the headlines that I saw out there in the world, and I won't call, I don't know who wrote it or who the yeah, edit. Yeah. I'm not blaming anybody in particular for it, but there was a headline for this that said that called uh, Razanandrangobi an animal, a predator with the head of T-Rex and the body of a crocodile, <laughs> which annoys me because first of all. We don't have any of the body. Yep. <laughs> and second of all, it was clearly a terrestrial hunter yep. based on the skull. So it would not have had the body of a crocodile. Yep. <laughs> like, that was, that's a dumb headline. Why, why'd you write that? It's act, like I, I get the sentiment <laughs> behind it. You know, it, it's, but it's not, that's very yeah. misleading. Darn science writers can't trust any of them. I'm a science writer. Science writers. Yep. <laughs> uh, that, that's tongue in cheek. Yep. <laughs> it's it's that issue of when like because paleo art's super fun and awesome, but it's it's really hard sometimes to remember that all we have is the front of the snout on this. Yes, like all, the rest of that paleo art in you know when we discover more about this animal could be completely thrown out the window. We like oh yeah. For now, it's this is what the bodies of other Notosuchians tend to look like. Mm-hmm. So here's our best guess. Yep, it'd be it would be fun to do that with just a whole bunch of pictures of prehistoric animals and then a picture of here's what we actually have just to drive that home <laughs> of like you know we can't take the the paleo art as the gospel because they are just interpreting you know data like anybody else they aren't oh yeah giving us the answer they are giving us a a good estimate or representation yeah the best idea we have for now yep all right i don't know how anyone's ever going to top that article well let me try with dinosaurs. <laughs> so this is an article. This is so speaking of things that are are a best estimate and not definitive. This is one of those studies that is absolutely one of those cases where this is going to change in the future, but it's such mm-hmm. a cool concept. I really wanted to mention it. This is a study. It's the first study that I know of. It might not be the only one, but it's the first study I know of that has attempted to determine the incubation temperature of dinosaur eggs. Which is crazy. So this is a study done by Amiot, or Amio et al. in paleontology, the journal Paleontology. This study looked at the eggs, uh, seven different examples of eggs, with embryos inside of them, of oviraptorosaurs. So these are close to birds, small-ish, usually, bipedal Super feathered dinosaurs. They have beaks and weird head crests a lot of the times. The reason that they looked at these, this group of dinosaurs is because several specimens of at least two different species have been discovered fossilized in position sitting on their nests. This has been found in the, in the, the genus Oviraptor and Citibody, both from over in Asia. So we know from several examples that these animals sat on their nests like birds and covered up the, the their eggs with their with their feathers which raised the question for these researchers were you know if they're incubating their birds with their bodies how warm were they keeping them so to find out cuz this is the part where you go how in the heck are you going to figure out the temperature of well let me tell you how are they going to get out of this one <laughs> <laughs> them paleontology boys is sure in a pickle now <laughs> so they did this using isotope analysis. 
So we mentioned briefly in the geologic time episode that atoms atoms of elements come in different forms, uh, mm-hmm. depending on how many neutrons you have. Oxygen, for example, can come in oxygen 16, oxygen 18, and the different forms have different weights, which means they act slightly differently. In this case, they looked at the oxygen composition in the eggshell and in the embryo's bones, because the bones are formed from the fluid within the egg. But when the bones are formed, the processes that form the bones don't treat different forms of oxygen quite the same. So the ratio of oxygen isotopes in the egg is going to be slightly different from the ratio of oxygen isotopes in the bones. Because those processes change that ratio as it goes. And exactly how the oxygen composition changes depends on the temperature of the environment. And this is known very well looking at modern birds and other modern animals. So going from eggshell oxygen to bone oxygen, the change you see can tell you what your temperature was, or at least give you a range of temperatures. That's pretty awesome. Which is extremely cool and exactly as far into that description as I am capable of getting right now. Right. Because now we're in chemistry land. It's that it's really cool when they discover those little things on Yeah. Just this affects it this way. And then someone finally goes, hey, wait a minute. Yes. <laughs> well, can't we, as long as you have mm-hmm. well-preserved eggs with embryos inside, which they do, you can estimate temperature. And they did. And their isotope analysis revealed temperatures during incubation of around 35 to 40 degrees Celsius, or that's around 100 degrees Fahrenheit, which is interesting because that is very similar to what we see in birds today. Mm-hmm. Uh, chickens, for example, lay their eggs of temperatures in that range. Very so that suggests that these dinosaurs, maybe not all dinosaurs, but this group at the very least, was incubating their eggs at the high temperatures that we see in modern birds, which also suggests that because they're incubating the eggs with their bodies, the dinosaurs' body temperatures were at least that high. Mm-hmm. And for comparison, 37 degrees Celsius is basically what your body temperature is. Yep. So this actually fits well in line. Uh, A lot of studies similar to this have found fairly high body temperatures in dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is another avenue of getting at that, and it reveals what it was like for them, at least, again, at least this group, incubating their eggs. That's pretty awesome. It's it's a good extra clue, you know, supporting that dinosaurs were active warm blooded animals and it was found in a really cool way. Like it's that's yeah. a really neat technique. And it's cool it's cool that by just doing the study, the temperature they got ended up being corroborated by modern birds. Yes. And so that's that's pretty awesome. I I'll be interested to see if, you know, when other people take a look at this what they find or if this study is recreated on any any other dinosaur eggs, what the results will show. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It's interesting because not all dinosaurs incubated their eggs by mm-hmm. sitting on them. Uh, some did what crocs do, and they buried them in vegetation, mm-hmm. things like that. So, yeah, understanding incubation temperature is 
is a really fascinating, it's the kind of thing you wouldn't think we'd be able to do. Yeah. And yet, there it is. Cool. So it's, it's a fun one. And there's the news. That's the news for today, folks. Check back in next time, and we'll have see you then. Yes, we will. So now, let's get into our main topic of discussion. Yeah. The main discussion today actually does not take place in this conversation that Will and I are having right now. What? We've wanted for quite some time to do an episode about fossil preparation with our good friend Sean. Mm Mm-hmm. And last month, there was a conference that took place at the Gray Fossil Site. Yeah. Our old stomping grounds Mm -hmm. and digging grounds and and such. So I got to go down there for the conference. Will, unfortunately, was unable to go. Yeah. That's all right. Next time. But while there, I got to sit down with Sean. Sean is the head of both excavations and the prep lab these days. Mm Mm-hmm. Sean is the the guy who taught Will and myself most of what we know about fossil prep. Absolutely. So fossil preparation, we talk about this in the interview, but real quick, is basically getting the fossils ready for study and ready for display and whatever you're going to do with them. So what we're going to cut to here right now is me sitting down with Sean in the Gray Fossil Site lab talking to him about fossil prep. And then after that, uh, we have a secondary interview to follow it up. Yeah. And it's it's pretty cool. Sean is one of those people who it's always fun to talk about his profession because he is truly passionate about it. Yes, he is. And a true expert. Uh, Absolutely. The nuances he knows are always impressive to me. Indeed. So without further ado, take it away, me and Sean. Hi, Sean. Hello, David. How's it going? Very well. Conference is going nicely. Yes, it is. I am sitting here in the prep lab at the Gray Fossil Site with Sean Hoggrud, who is an old friend of mine and Will's from our time here, and the head preparator at the site. So, Sean, real briefly, can you give me a a sense of your experience as a preparator? I started doing prep as an amateur on my own time with Cretaceous fossils from Texas, but I've also done prep for uh, dinosaur fossil sites and have since come to Gray and learned on mammals, you adapt different techniques from different sites. Every fossil site has its own uh, set of circumstances, and you can use some general things, but you will have to modify uh, for different parameters. Okay. And now here at Gray, you are the lab and field manager. But today we're talking about fossil preparation. So, for starters, what is fossil prep? Fossil prep is taking something from the field, so they'll come in, and then getting it ready for research or exhibition, Mm -hmm. mostly just preserving it for the future. Right. And that is carried out in a number of different ways, usually involving a cleaning process, but not always, and then a preservation of some varying technique, depending on what site you're at. Right. So I get the idea there is that when you find a fossil in the field, it's not ready for research. It's not ready to be on display. Yes. They're often obscured, smashed, uh, very soft and delicate. So you will need to modify them by preservation. So strengthening and then reassembling if necessary. Right. So let's talk about the de- the details of prep, right? The, the pieces of prep work that there are. And to structure that, I guess we'll just walk through the process. So you, at any site, dinosaur site, gray site, you get a fossil. It comes into the prep lab. 
what are the steps? Where do you start? What's the first thing that has to get done? The first step is making sure to track the specimen throughout your lab before it moves into collections. So inventory is important. Oftentimes you have a specimen that is in several pieces, different elements included. So having a sort of mastery of where everything is and which components you need to work on at what time is critical. So tracking things with uh, inventory spreadsheets uh, okay. and which station they're at. So who's working on what, what is appropriate for a preparator to work on versus a head preparator or so on. So that's very critical is identifying what you have and not just on a species level, but is it weathered? Is it delicate? Is it smashed? What kind of criteria are you going to be evaluating each piece on to determine how aggressively or passively to attack the situation? Okay, so so basically bookkeeping is the, and planning is the yes. first step before you even get into the hands-on stuff. Yes, always evaluate. So any preparators that are working in here, uh, even first trainees, they go through a heuristics model, so if-then questions. Uh, so they will evaluate their specimen first on uh, is it animal uh, or plant? Right. Then you want to branch off. Uh, if it's animal, is it reptile or mammal? They put their bones together in completely different ways, and that will change the techniques you need to use from a base point. Once you've established which one it is, if it's mammal, is it an adult or is it a juvenile? That will drastically alter which path you take. Then you figure out uh, which element, where it is in the body, will change how much you can do to it, how quickly and aggressively. Okay. And then after that point, was there any weathering prior to fossilization or weathering after fossilization that will alter the model that you choose? Right, right. So you so identifying yep. what it is and then figuring out the plan moving forward. Yes. Interesting. All right. So then once you get your hands on the specimen, what has to be done to it? What, 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 what's the first prep step? The first step is always cleaning. And once you've evaluated a specimen, and as an example, we can say a a taper kneecap. It's a very strong bone, so we can go with a, mm -hmm. a nice model. That, let's go with the best situation. So it's a taper kneecap, adult, and it is unweathered. Optimal conditions no for No damage, you. nice no damage, and big. Yes. The best prep. Prep can be done by a number of people of varying skill levels as long as they recognize where their skill level ends. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you can also have people who are extremely skilled but timid. The best prep occurs in that last 10%. If you have a chart, <laughs> of difficulty and skill level and then aggressiveness on the right, other side, right. confidence. Uh, <laughs> you want to operate almost, if you can, with training, if you operate right below the line. So that last 5% is the most efficient, best cleaning, uh, but you don't want to damage the fossil. So uh, you want to be able to go to the edge of the cliff and look over without <laughs> falling off. So the best preparation happens in that sweet spot. Right. When you're not too aggressive. Because obviously if you're trying to clean it and you're too aggressive, right. you'll damage you'll it. You'll damage it. So right. that is the difference between a technician and a preparator, pretty much. It's okay. finding that line and staying on the correct side of it. Yeah. But we'll take that kneecap, and the first step is identifying it, so you've evaluated it. With that particular instance, we can be fairly aggressive. So we will use a short bristle brush. We have long and short bristles that'll cover uh, aggressive and passive scale. Mm -hmm. uh, then another factor is how fast you brush. Fast speed is aggressive, low speed is passive. Then you have pressure. Uh, you can increase pressure for more aggression or decrease pressure for less aggression. So on this kneecap, we can go aggressive, aggressive, aggressive. So high speed, high pressure, short bristle to clean it as quickly as possible without breaking it. 
Right. Uh, so we will use these dry techniques because the glues that we'll use later are not water compatible. So even though we okay. could clean this type of specimen with uh, wet cleaning mm -hmm. uh, in about five minutes, we'd have to wait at least two days for it to dry before we could apply glues. If you have someone clean it for five hours, it does seem tedious, but they can immediately consolidate it once it has reached clean. Right, right. Uh, so, so you do shave off two days off the process. Okay. It's the tortoise and the hare. Right, right, right. So so here, you, you know, like you said, toothbrushes, your bristle length is going to change how soft or hard uh, you're, you're hitting the fossil. And it's, I've worked in, you know, I've worked in this lab and it's a lot of just brushing in circles, you know, back and forth in the same place. What are you cleaning off? Right. And I know that changes by site. Changes by site. Here it's clay. So it's going to be some sort of sedimentation. Uh, in this case, we have a nice clay. The brushes remove a lot of that. You can see the smoke coming off of it. That's the dust being powdered and removed. You will want mm -hmm. to use an elliptical motion. Bone has a subtle, uh, almost like a wood grain texture. If you go back and forth in one direction, you will miss stuff on the leeward side. So an elliptical motion will cause the bristles to hit it from all angles. So there's a lot of subtlety that separates good prep from great prep, and you want right, to get right. that. You're going to alternate with some wet techniques. So you're going to use Q-tip and alcohol. Uh, we use alcohol again because it's going to evaporate out really quickly so it doesn't slow us down overall. We can toggle right. back and forth. That will go into the fossil, into pores, into microscopic cracks, bring sediment up to the surface. You allow it to dry then you can remove it with the brushing technique. So you go back and forth until it is fully clean. It is important right. not to brush if it is wet. You will burnish the fossil, look waxy and fake. So we train all of our uh, prep technicians to not only use their eyes, something can appear dry. You know, everyone's familiar with something being wet is darker. Mm -hmm. Not always. You can still burnish it if it looks dry. You need to use your sense of touch. So if you seal a portion of the fossil with your thumb, you need to train yourself to recognize a one or two degree difference between the temperature under your thumb versus your face or arm. That is vapor building up under your thumb in a enough of a quantity that you can detect it. Right, right. So there's a lot of very technical know-how that goes into being able, you know, it's not as simple as just brushing the dirt off of a fossil. Right. It, is, you, it is deceptive <laughs> in that we're working with, you know, essentially... A regular kit is a dental pick, two toothbrushes, and some Q-tips. Yes. Yep. Very cool. Uh, one of the biggest questions that always comes up, especially when people look into the lab, is how do you know which stuff to remove from the fossil, right, when it's dirty? Uh, I even, you know, I, when I started volunteering at Adelphi, at the dinosaur lab up there, that took me a little while. It's like, all right, which of this stuff is the dirt that I, want, that I don't like, and then which of this stuff is, is the bone to, to preserve? So how does that, you know, what, what do you, how do you know uh, at various different sites? That is, doing? again, everything's in subtleties. You definitely want to almost apprentice with someone who is familiar with the particular site you're working at. Right. Uh, oftentimes there's a difference in the color between the fossil right. and the matrix around it, the uh, sediment that you're trying to remove. Sometimes there is not, though. So sometimes you need a good understanding of the anatomy of the bone you're about to start working on. So that lump shouldn't be there. It's probably clay. Remove it. But definitely test it as you're going to make sure it's not a pathology uh, or something interesting that is part of the bone. Right. That's actually a really good point. Uh, it's interesting that you, your first response to that was basically work with somebody who knows it. Uh, and that's always been my experience is you, it, you work with it long enough and you have a sense for all right, this is bone, this is sediment, this is the shape of the bone, this is the texture that I'm looking for. And the 
best way to learn it is to get experience and work with somebody who's already doing it. So our bone is clean. Mm -hmm. right? We've cleaned off our bone. Obviously, if it was a tiny bone, the, the cleaning process might be different. Now what? Right now we're going to consolidate it for strength. And the kneecap is pretty strong, but other things are not. Uh, we treat everything. There's a standardization process so that uh, anyone will know what chemicals have been used. Uh, if you're going to do anything differently, make a note of that so that researchers in the future will know what you've done to this thing. Right. Uh, in our case, the consolidation, the strengthening of the bone will be done with B98. It's a liquid plastic. Mm -hmm. It's dissolved in 91% isopropyl alcohol. And we use this because it is archival. It won't change 100 years from now. It'll look the same. But also it is reversible. It's a very user-friendly uh, consolidant. Right. And it works very, very well. But what we will do, and I've seen different talks on this and things, a lot of people will try to hyper-consolidate a bone, get it saturated. Uh, you don't want to super-saturate because it will be waxy again. It'll look like plastic. You don't want that. Right. You want to obscure in photos for research. You want it protected optimally, but not too much on the outside. Right. But you will go ahead and consolidate it. Many people have suggested putting it in a airtight chamber to let the consolidant get all the way to the center. You don't want to do that. When you've sealed hmm. it with its own vapors, the solvent reactivates. You're going to melt your own glue with the off-gassing <laughs> that it's producing. And so you've wasted two days and allowed most of your glue to pull in the bottom of the specimen, but a lot of it to actually just flow out the bottom. So what you right. really want to do is flash dry it. So we actually intentionally leave it out in open air we will we'll consolidate it to saturation, so you make sure mm -hmm. it's completely filled with the consolidant. Then you'll put it down, and there are three forces that have to be considered that each preparator is thinking about when they do this. Uh, you are going to be working against gravity. That's the strongest one. Pulling, that it, to, pulling all the material downwards. That will pull all your fluid down. You are working against wicking. Wicking of the paper that you put it on, the paper wants to suck out more bar once it's started. Okay, the paper that the fossil is... Yes, because you don't want it to bond your desk. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you also are working against glue migration. So where the... Basically where the solvent wants to evaporate out, if it's a spongy area, it can move through there easier. The glue will want to follow it, so it can often actually pull things upward. Okay. Use that to your advantage. Keep the glue from pooling in one direction rotate it completely 180 degrees, and then also move it to a different section of your special paper mm -hmm. uh, so that you've solved wicking at the same time. You're not right, right. wicking more out, and you're not going to stick to the paper. That's the other thing is you never want to stick to paper. You don't want fibers on your bone. But if you use a, uh, a trifold, uh, they're, they're really the cheap paper towels you find in bathrooms, essentially. Right. That is actually the perfect thing. Because you're doing this in open air, it's drying fairly quickly. The glue is getting slower and slower as it gets more viscous. So you'll have to do this as long as it leaves a wet spot, but you keep flipping it back and forth. That keeps the glue moving on the inside. If you do this correctly, by the time it stops leaving a wet spot, if you were to scan it, or not that you would, but if you sawed it in half, what you'll find is that the cancellus, the uh, spongy bone inside, has been completely and evenly filled with plastic. Right. You're, you're rotating, you're considering all these different forces, because so, you want your consolidant, which is essentially going through there and gluing everything nice and strong to spread throughout yes. even. It's funny that, that this conversation gets very technical very quickly, yes. and it starts being a lot of chemistry. Yes. That you're really going into right, how do liquids work, and how does this substance interact with paper, and how does it interact with the bone, and how quickly does it evaporate, and now you're just now you're a chemist. Yes, a lot. Yeah. Again, the, the distinction between decent prep and really good prep 
you need to factor in physics and chemistry and a lot of other yeah. disciplines. Excellent. So we have our bone. It's clean. It's consolidated. And then the important part, I guess, of consolidation is that's to ensure that it's not going to crumble at right. some point. In the it's now strong enough to play with. Yes. Now what? So now, depending on if it's a solid bone or if it is a broken piece, so you might have a skull and it's a thousand pieces or more, mm -hmm. now that all those individual fragments are consolidated, the real work begins with reconstruction. And that is using adhesive. So that is B76. It's another uh, polyvinyl butyrol for anyone interested in that. Yeah. Uh, it's a plastic resin dissolved in solvent, this time acetone. And the reason we do that is that both of those are reversible but they don't interact with each other. So you can undo one while leaving the other in place. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So now we're talking about gluing things together, right? We're piecing a fossil back together. You mentioned this before, that idea of keeping data for the future. And now you've brought up the very important point of being considering what might happen in the future. You need something that isn't going to damage your fossil, but also that it, in, just in case it turns out, you know, you messed up, or it turns out that something in their, your prep technique wasn't as good as it should have been, having a glue that's reversible is really, really nice that you can dissolve it away. There are always degrees to this kind of work. With the reconstruction, it's not as simple as puzzle pieces where it looks like this piece fits into that piece. You right. should really train yourself, again, not just for visual, but also for the feel. Two pieces that belong together should seat well, and you should feel that. Uh, mm. But instead of just looking at the outside pieces to see if they fit, take the two parts and look for a almost a reverse topography in the break scar. So if it's a hill over here, you want a depression over there that corresponds to it. And they're not always fully there, so it's like a partial fingerprint that you're looking at, and you want to match that in your mind to get the fits correct. Right. But once you start uh, with the adhesive, you're just going to apply a small amount. You don't want to put glue all the way out to the end because then it will squeeze out like jelly on a sandwich. Mm -hmm. You want to get the sweet spot where the glue goes all the way out to the end but doesn't ooze out. And that takes a lot of practice. So uh, you have to apply your glue in such a way that it's you're getting into the break, you found your your sort of puzzle piece fit. Of course, in this case, it's like a puzzle piece that you dipped in acid for yeah. a little bit. Now it's kind of dissolved around the edges. Um, but you're... You, want, you don't want your glue overflowing. It's very important to get these, all these products exactly where they need to be and nowhere else. If you have spongy bone, when you apply the two pieces together, a lot of the glue can actually go into the sponge and not work its way outward. So you want to apply more, or better yet, to both halves, both pieces that you're bonding. Right, so different kinds of fossils. Yes. Your technique changes depending yes. on what kind of thing you're, you're trying to prep. Yes. What is it like... So you, so here at the gray site, for example, you've glued together. I've seen you do turtle shells and taper skulls, and this behind us right now, the viewers can't, the listeners can't see it, but behind us is an elephant pelvis, uh, and then behind you, behind you is the uh, mammoth mastodon skull. Uh, at other sites, you're working on dinosaurs. What is it? What's the process like of taking a hundred pieces of broken bone and putting them back into their proper shape? It is very painstaking, and you can't just find two fits and glue them immediately. You have to keep one foot in the future on each project and one foot in the present. If you just glue pieces as you find them, you will landlock yourself out of a lot of places. So a lot of what you're doing is thinking about the order of operations on that. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to consider that. And so there's a lot of reevaluation. You'll find fits and set them aside but not glue them. So it's a really complex puzzle, not just because 
like a, a jigsaw puzzle, all the pieces fit one way, which with these they do too. But the way these things break, they're not sawn out very nicely so that you can put them together in any order you choose. Right. You have to think of it as a almost a time puzzle as well. So which piece to add at which time. Right. You don't want to start, if you glue every piece as soon as you see it, you might end up gluing around the space where another piece right. goes, and then now your piece doesn't fit in that hole because you've blocked it off. And that is a reason to use reversible glues. So yes. you can correct for that. Some of the most ridiculous things I've seen you do are with things like turtle shells, which are broken into just literally hundreds and hundreds of tiny pieces. And once again, another thing the listeners can't see is that Sean is 6'4", and a big guy, and to see you working on these tiny things, uh, what are some of your favorites in terms of fossils you've gotten to work on? I enjoy a variety of scale, because I part yeah. of the fun of the job is not just the fossils you're working on, but the challenge of it. The first panda skull was very interesting. It is thin enough to where you can candle the brain case, so I had to come up with a completely new method uh, that I later published on for a filler that is paper thin but strong enough to work with that. So we modified okay. our standard glue uh, to deal with that. And then, of course, the Mastodon is probably my favorite thing now because it is the most challenging. This will be right. the most difficult project I've ever done, and I look forward to that. I'm, yes. I'm almost done with the jaw, and I'm really looking forward to getting into the skull. It's a little scary, but you have to, again, you want to be confident enough to do that. Otherwise, you are defeated right from the beginning of the project. Right, right, right. So what, um, I guess to, to ask a question that's a little more uh, of a fun question, what, what, what happens when you make a mistake? And have you made mistakes? Well, I should ask, what mistakes have you made? Because I'm sure you have. There are mistakes uh, that I've made in the order of operation. So the jaw I'm working on right now, it is over four feet long. Mm -hmm. And the longer you get, the bigger the object gets. If you are off by a millimeter at one end on a glue joint, right. by the time you're four feet away, that little angle of deflection has caused you to be off quite a bit more over there. So right, it's right. not so much that you made a mistake that you can even see. But based on that scale, it's going to come back later. So uh, turtle shells with the angle of the shell going around, yep. they have these pretty little sutures that seem to fit perfectly, and they do, but in life they were not that way. So if you think about expansion joints on a bridge, they're supposed to be open a little bit. When you start that project, you can't know how far it's supposed to be open, what angle. So you get all the way right. around the rim of the shell, and it's off by a centimeter. So yes. then you have to not dissolve your glue joints, but soften all of them simultaneously so you can shift and then it readjust because each one of those joints should be open at a slight angle that the shell had in life but you can't know because it's individual to right, that specific. right right so. that's another good point is that it's you said it's not quite like a puzzle piece for a lot of reasons one of the other reasons is that there's no picture you don't know exactly what it's going to look like you have an idea right a turtle shell looks like a turtle shell but as you just said every individual turtle is slightly different they're all going to be different. Uh, many of the animals that we deal with can be new species. So uh, comparative yep. anatomy understanding helps. Uh, if you can get any specimens from related animals, that's very helpful. But the, the thing to keep in mind, if, even if it's an animal you've never worked on before, the pieces will only fit one true way. So you can yes. have no knowledge of this creature, and if you are really, really good at puzzles, you'll still get it correctly together. Right. So now we've cleaned it. Right, we, we, we identified it, we've inventoried it, we've cleaned it, we've consolidated, right, strengthened it. Now we have glued together whatever it is. 
Now, is it done? I guess we consolidate it again. Well, if it needs an extra coat, but usually if you've done it right the first time, you're, you're good to go. Okay. If it's a larger piece, so if it's something like the mastodon here, where the skull is going to be ridiculous, over mm-hmm. four feet long, uh, instead of just basic assembly where, okay, now I'm done with this bone, you are going over complex structures that are very large. You're going to be doing large reconstruct work. So you may have to employ clamps and sandboxes and all sorts of things to hold it. You've got to think about this project needs to be started first thing in the morning because I'm going to be holding this for five hours. Right, so right, right. I've had someone scratch my nose before, actually. Like, you have to hold this <laughs> for a while. Yeah. You have to hold it there. It's going gonna, it's gonna <laughs> to happen. So there's that to think about. If there are any missing pieces, you have to reconstruct those. And then is it an issue of scale? How much does this thing weigh? The jaw is going to weigh more than some people. It'll be over 100 pounds. Right, right. So if you're missing pieces, what do you fill that in with? that's strong enough, but it's not going to then add weight. Right. So you have, so to visualize what you're talking about, you have your taper skull, your turtle shell, even something tiny, right? Any, anything that you're working with, if, because fossils aren't always complete, if you're missing a piece inside, right, you have a hole that was just not preserved, you can't, in a lot of cases, if you leave the hole there, it might not stay together, right? It might collapse under its weight or something. So you need to fill in that space. Yes. And a lot of people have traditionally used things like plaster of Paris or two-part epoxies and make a solid plug. Not only is that not truly a very strong fit, if there's a crack, since it's a solid piece, it will propagate across. Uh, but also you're adding a lot of weight, which is counterproductive. You're mm-hmm. increasing the likelihood of failure in many cases. So what I try to do is look at how things are designed naturally anyway. They, When an animal grows its body, it's subject to certain biomechanical forces, weight, right. gravity, these things have already been solved. So instead of trying to go about it uh, with a solid plug, what structures were there and how closely can I mimic them? So right. all the spongy, cancellous bone inside, uh, I can replace missing bone from there by spinning what essentially looks like spider web. So I will replace right. spongy bone with spongy glue. So a lot of void space. A lot of it's there. It okay. works like cables. It's extremely strong, right? Uh, but lightweight. Interesting. So this, this is a, a thing. Nature already figured this out. Yes. You're just trying to copy it to fill in the rest of the yes. bone. Very cool. So then once it's done, right, the next step, of course, is collections. Then it yes. goes either collections or exhibit, mm-hmm. where it's now it gets a number and it goes gets cataloged. It's ready for research. You've taken this smushed up chunk of dirt and transformed it into your nice fossil. Another question that people love to ask, how long does that take? It can take a while. It depends, again, on the severity of how crushed (laughs) up something is, the project, how big it is. Uh, Some things move fairly quickly. To give you a basic idea, a taper skull. So So people, if you don't know what a taper is, listeners, because we keep mentioning it because we're talking about the gray site, uh, tapirs are South American, also Malaysian, Horse rhino relatives, they don't look like an anteater, but people like to say they look like an anteater. They're little sort of piggy-looking creatures with uh, long trunks. Um, Drowsy from Pokemon is a taper. For those for, That'll help most of you, probably. Uh, so you got your taper skull. So that's a nice general idea. It's about 12 to 14 inches long, so it gives you an idea of how big it okay. is. You can expect to work on that for about a month based on the preservation okay. here. Something like a turtle shell, you can get down around two weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are not you know, whole turtle shells in a block of concretion where you're just prepping the surface. You're, you're doing uh, a lot of work putting pieces back together. So different sites, again, will vary. But for here, 
turtle shells are a month to two weeks. And again, that's a human head size object, so you spend a lot of time on these. Right, right. The uh, skull behind me, the Mastodon skull, is going to take uh, six months to a year, probably. Yeah. It's very flattened. Yeah, it, yeah it's super destroyed yeah. and all torn up and tons and tons of pieces, and it's huge. It's the, it's, that jacket is as long as you. It's actually nine foot four inches long, so it is it is the second biggest jacket I've done. <laughs> wow! So uh, prep work, obviously, lots of work, lots of very specialist work. You know, this isn't just you know there are some tasks that you know digging up to a point is okay. I can do that. I can dig in. The, you know, I can dig through the soil, uh, and then you learn as you go. Some parts of prep work, like cleaning, okay, I could do that. I can brush, but you very quickly hit a point where it's. You really need to know what you're doing. You really need to be uh, a very specialized in doing this. We've talked about sort of big things. Now, uh, in the Gray Lab and in a lot of other labs, you also get tiny things. Uh, you know, the things that I like, the snake vertebrae and lizard, lizard jaws and stuff like that. And in those cases, it, it seems like there's not a whole lot of cleaning and repairing as much often to do. Uh, the problem there is sorting. Usually sorting. We do get into uh, micro-prep. Some of the projects that I end up working on are multi-pieced turtle skulls, all sorts of So you can get into that as well. Okay. And then this, this lab has a whole section for people just pouring bags of sediment and picking out all the little tiny things. Yes. They will actually end up pulling any given year now, uh, like last year, they essentially pulled every single snake vertebra, fish scale, yep. uh, salamander bone from 20 tons of material. Yeah, and this this site is unusual for that, right? We're pulling all the sediment yes. out here. So. Very cool. We talked a little bit about the tools that we're using. Um, you said dental picks, uh, toothbrushes. At the site, uh, at, at Mike Demick's lab, where I volunteer a lot, uh, he's got paintbrushes sometimes for things. What other what other tools, uh, in a broad sense, fit? There's not. It, it it seems like there's not really a lot in the way of paleo prep tools a lot of them are stolen from other professions yes, we, we definitely steal a bunch from other professions that is your basic bread and butter kit is those mm -hmm. toothbrushes dental picks things like that depending on what you're getting into though you can branch out into a lot of very advanced things so we actually have here a number of small jackhammers called micro jacks one of them yeah. our smallest one is the size of a crayon yes uh, so we have those i have a flex shaft grinder that uses uh, diamond bit wheels to chew through rock. Uh, we don't have it here, but a lot of places where I've been and I have used them, uh, micro-abrasive system. So it's basically blowing baking soda or other things right. to slowly obliterate matrix or sediment off. Like sandblasting. Yes. So those are those are good things. You know, here at Gray, it's a lot of clay and it can be brushed away. Yeah. But if you're working, especially a lot of dinosaur sites, mm -hmm. you know, Mesozoic stuff, you've got hard rock and you need something a little tougher. Uh, in fact, I, my thesis specimen, I worked right here in the in the back room with the micro jack, which is the crayon sized little jackhammer that I, you know, chiseling away at the sediment around the fossil. Another thing that's really interesting uh, in terms of prep, obviously, is that just like excavation, just like research, your technique differs depending not only on what kind of animal you're working on or what kind of, you know, if it's plant, if it's micro stuff, if it's invertebrates, which we haven't even really talked about, but a lot of this stuff is going to be probably very similar. Different sites have completely different techniques. So some of the stuff you do here is stuff that no one else is doing. What are some of the, the, the things you've come across that 
you know, how does prep work, how can prep work differ between different sites that you've worked on? That gets into chemistry for one thing. We've seen talks today, especially that deal with that. You can't always apply the same methods. Uh, a lot of people do acid prep because their fossil is locked in a stone. It might not be the correct path to use something very mechanically aggressive like a, a microjack or something like that. Right. So a, a subtle use of acid to slowly dissolve out. There is a lot of variability. So you can use the base rules, basically, basic cleaning methods and things, but you might use different solvents. Uh, we've mentioned salt bills during the conference. Mm -hmm. Those cannot be used with bupar because to use bupar there can be no water content inside the bone within certain degrees the saltville stuff cannot be allowed to dry because it will crack so you have a catch-22 you need to glue it so it doesn't crack but you can't glue it because it's wet right, uh, right. so some people will use water-based consolidants and adhesives uh, other people will not some people have more highly mineralized specimens so a lot of dinosaur bone all the spongy bone inside has crystals in the blank spots, so it's essentially solid all the way through, and there may not be enough purchase, enough grasp area mm -hmm. for some of these other glues. So you may need to use something a lot stronger or more aggressive. There are trade-offs and drawbacks to all of these things, right. so you need to consider uh, your tools and methods carefully. Interesting. You mentioned Saltville, which is a site up in Virginia that is a much younger site, cave site. Uh, and yeah, all that stuff is wet, but it's not just wet, it's salt water. Yes. And so you used to have, and I'm sure it's still around here somewhere, mm -hmm. but the the, uh, the shelves of the fossils trying to leach the salt out of them before yes. you could even do anything with them. And it was a two-year process. You would desalt the water, so desalination took about a year to slowly mm -hmm. do it. And then there was a slow dry that occurred over the course of a year, uh, and we still had cracking. So we still not finished figuring out that problem. We're, we're getting there. I really suspect the problem is that they're preserved too well. If you think about uh, hmm. modern bone, there's a hard component like the concrete in a building, and there's a soft but strong component, the collagen, that right. acts a lot like steel. It's flexible but strong. Because of the salt water that's at Saltville, they have soaked in this for so long, it's preserved the collagen in the bone. So once that dries, if you think about the soft component, if you think about a cable or like a tendon, a natural tendon, when that dries, it's contracting, but the solid component of the bone cannot. And so think about piano wire slowly right, tightening right. inside your rib. It's breaking <laughs> itself. Right. And so then the, the options become, well, now that there is collagen in this specimen, unlike other places, do you solve the cracking problem by dissolving the collagen? But then that right. is bad for anyone wanting to do isotope analysis or DNA testing and things like that. So right. you have to consider, <laughs> is this for exhibit? Is this for research? Do you want the measurements off of it or do you want the DNA from it? All sorts of things like that that are going to become a conversation between the person prepping it and the person who's going to research it later. Interesting. So yeah, that's an interesting point that it doesn't just vary based on where it came from. It varies, your prep techniques vary based on where it's going Yes, and what the plan is for it. For example, I, and I know you mentioned before uh, we were talking earlier about the mastodon. You don't want, you're not going to put the tusks back in the jaw because you want the tusks to be able to be studied separately. Yes. This is something that comes up a lot with snakes when I was studying snakes. With modern snakes, a lot of the time, modern snake skeletons, when they're preserved in museums, are preserved all still together and articulated. But as a fossil study, I want to know what the vertebra looks like on all sides. And so you have to try to convince museums to be like, hey, can I break your snake apart so that I can look at the individual vertebrae? Uh, and it does vary based on what is going to be done with it. So uh, fossil prep is not a static 
field. And just like research is always coming up with new things, and just like excavation techniques are always improving and changing, preparation techniques are always changing. There are things that you do here, right? There, there are things that we used to do that then we realized was not the right way to go. And you always hear these stories of, oh, well, we came to this, they sent us this specimen, and it turned out they used crazy glue to, yeah. to put it together. What are some of the things we've sort of learned over time? And then what are the things that are that you're doing these days here that are new? Over time, a lot of sites have learned to use reversible glues. Like, right. if, if that's an option, you should probably be using that. <laughs> Finding something that has the, the characters you want, so the strength level you're looking for, mm-hmm. visually... How much are you obscuring things? All of those things are things to think about. And those have been worked out. Labs have been doing prep for a long, long time with all these various things. Some of the new things that we're doing here is we keep pushing uh, not just the reversible glues that we're using in traditional senses, but our fillers or our reconstructive techniques. Spider webbing, our mastodon is huge. It is not at all like the Ice Age one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we are able to do this with these very lightweight structures, very strong. We're using a lot of aluminum in that. So we okay. talked about the spider webbing replacing the, the spongy bone. The outer bone is replaced with flexible sheets of perforated aluminum, basically water okay. patches. Right. Uh, aluminum is an extremely strong but lightweight metal and is an added quirk. Uh, most metals uh, like steel, mm-hmm. iron, when they oxidize, they become weakened and brittle. They uh, turn into a powder. They change color. Not anything you would ever want in collections for 100 years. Right, Aluminum, right. if it oxidizes, which usually it's very hard to get it to oxidize in normal circumstances with just humidity, uh, as an added quirk, it actually gets a little stronger. It will get some brittleness, huh. but it doesn't, it doesn't behave like steel or something like that. So right. these meshes that I'm using are extremely strong and lightweight. They have a very nice uh, tensile strength while saving weight, but I can cut through them with scissors while I'm preparing to turn them into the reconstructed surface that I'm using. They are then sealed front and back with one layer of glue. So the final structure is basically a millimeter thick, but holds shape and is very strong and lightweight. And this is a technique that you have developed here. Yes. And it might not even be a technique that is good for another fossil site, right? It might be something that they would have to then adjust. Potentially. They might need to adjust based on mineralization might be an issue. But again, we can handle the jaws well over 100 pounds and it's holding. So that is the largest animal we will ever find here. Largest type of animal. I'm sure we'll get a larger mastodon. Right, right, right. So it, it may very well work for other sites that have very large animals if they have open spongy bone or something like that so there's enough purchase for glue. What is your best prep story? The best prep story, I don't know. It, these if things, you have one. These things are like children. Uh, by the time <laughs> you're done with them, it's very hard to choose. You can't you choose your favorite. favorite. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had mentioned the panda. That one was very nice because that is a new species. Not only is it a new species, it is the most complete specimen in the world. It's 98% complete. Yep. So when one of your babies basically <laughs> is being figured in publications and things like that, you do feel a lot of uh, pride on that project. If you can help fill in the blanks in scientific understanding. Otherwise, you know, everything's just going to be a flattened skull that someone tries to describe. Right. Uh, if you can really get it back to where you notice interesting landmarks or, hey, this region is inflated, what does that mean? There's a lot of things that pop up if you can get it done correctly. Awesome. Excellent. Sean, thank you very much. Thank for you for giving having us me. Insights into your, your prep work.
just about all my prep experience I learned from you. Uh, yes. You taught me to do prep work here, and then I, I went on to, you know, I've worked at a couple other labs. But it's it's really cool. It's it's a fascinating subject. People might have more questions, and we'll, we'll see if, if they ask more. Cool. Thanks again. This was awesome. Thank you. So that's my interview with Sean. It was that was super interesting. You know, like we said at the beginning, I was bummed I couldn't be there, but it was still really great to get to hear the conversation. And like I said before we started, the amount that Sean knows about prep is always incredibly impressive to me. Oh yeah. Well, he's been doing it for years and years. And that's the thing that really blows me away is how much of an art fossil prep is. Like yeah. typically when you think about science procedures it's very much when you're sequencing dna you do step one you do step two you do step three you do step four and it's basically the same every time i'm sure mm -hmm. there's a geneticist out there right now who's going no it's not but like <laughs> it's you know, but it's, it's supposed to be right you're exactly. supposed to follow there's very standard it's like procedure. a cookbook while fossil prep you know is the fossil wet how big is it you know how you know many pieces it is is it in how long has it been in the jacket all yep. of those things affect all these little nuances, and it was really, when we were there, it would always be interesting to watch Sean analyze a situation, because he he didn't take it as like a, is it a turtle? All right, here's the turtle template. He would just go, let me take a look at it, and then he'd, he'd get his hands on it, he'd feel it, he'd look at it, and he'd go, mm, probably want to use this. Yeah. And it was very much like a, you know, it's very tactile, it's very... You just kind of have to know, you know, he said this multiple times, but the nuances, it's all about that best, you know, best techniques and tools for the situation could be completely different with the exact same kind of fossil for a number of reasons. Yeah. And that's crazy to me. There was one example that he gave that uh, really stood out to me because he talked about putting together the turtle shells mm -hmm. and how you can't put them together like you would think by fitting the joints perfectly because it'll eventually have them sitting too wide. You know, they, they won't yes. come together because the joints were not perfectly fit when the animal was alive. Well, at the aquarium, we were going through all of our backlog of biofacts, you know, all of our different bones or skulls or shells or feathers or whatnot we have yeah. for educational purposes, and we came across a gopher tortoise shell that mm -hmm. was mostly broken into its pieces and partially to make it usable and partially to, you know, just to do it. We decided to put it back together. Right. Uh, and I had remembered Sean telling me these things, mm -hmm. you know, from back when we, just from him mentioning it. And I had said, like, you know, we need to make sure we don't do the joints. Now, there were three of us putting it together. So it's kind of that anything done by committee. Yeah. Is usually. <laughs> so it, we each were putting together three parts and then we tried to put all those parts together and it was a little chaotic. But this was a brand new, complete tortoise shell. No cracks, no chips. It was in really, really good condition. So this was not a beat up fossil. And. Yeah. Even with that, the difficulty of trying to get the joints to meet up the right way and actually everything to fit was impressive. Like, yeah. it's still really tricky. And then when you're doing it on something that you may only have three quarters of the shell, and oh, who yeah. knows what part you're missing. You know, you may be missing the middle upper section. So you have a literal hole in the middle of your dome. Yep. And so it's really, really impressive on you know, preparators that handle these things are true artisans. Oh yeah. And Sean knows his stuff. He is he's really very very good at this. It's and it's uh it's funny cuz a number of times he got fairly technical and yep. 
that happens a lot of times when you talk with professionals, but that's not just that Sean is a professional. Preparation is a very technically complex step of the process. It is a, there are so many different things, the chemicals you use. You know, he talked about it being the uh, Butvar and other things they use being collection safe. Mm -hmm. And what he means by that is that it's not going to change, but also there's a whole bunch of things. Like if you write on something with Sharpie, eventually that Sharpie is going to start eating away at the thing you wrote it on when it's been there for a few decades. Yeah. Like we have to use special ink pens and we have to use special glues and we have to use special, you know, consolidants and all of that stuff to make sure that we don't eventually, it doesn't eventually turn acidic and eat the fossil we worked on 40 yep. years ago. And it's crazy. Yeah. Lots to consider. It's, it's really cool. Now, while we were at the conference, uh, this secondary interview was one that we did not even plan for, which is, which was super fun for me. This was on Sean's suggestion because he has a whole army of literally volunteers and assistants and students that, that help him out. And when I say an army, I mean he actually this this year has them split into regiments because <laughs> that's that's how Sean is. Sean's it, a little intimidating. It's awesome. We love him, but yeah. <laughs> oh no, it's fantastic. It's, we we it's, are glad we really, are his really friends. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you don't want to be on the opposite side of Sean in a war <laughs> situation. So he suggested that I talk to Shaylee Maiden and Davis Gunnan, who are his two sort of top lab preparator people. Both of them are students. Both of them have been working there for relatively short time, certainly shorter than Sean. So I sat down with both of them to get some insight into this lab in particular. So uh, my interview with Sean, we talked a lot about the gray site, but it was mostly overall preparatory procedures. Shaley and Davis got to tell me a little bit about specifically what it's like working in the gray fossil site lab itself. So without further ado again, here is the second interview. Enjoy. So, I just talked to Sean for a while about prep work in general, fossil preparation, and now, since I am in the Gray Fossil Site Prep Lab, I am sitting down with two of the head preparators in here. I have Shaley Maiden and Davis Gunnan, who are Sean's, I'm told, Sean's left and right hand here in the lab. And so I'd love to get from you guys a, a little bit of an image of what prep work is like specifically here in the lab. So let's start with Shaylee, since you've been here longer, and I actually knew you before this time here. So you are, now you're a, you were a volunteer originally yes. as a high school student. Yes, now I am on staff through a scholarship throughout most of the semester, and I am currently contracted for the summer. Okay, and so. what, what sort of prep work do you tend to do here? I tend to specialize in uh, cranial, taper cranial usually. I've been working on a lot of proboscidean lately. It's a big animal. There's a lot of it to work on, yep. so there's plenty to go around. But smaller, delicate things, things that are complex in a 3D way that would require a lot of, to do a lot of assembly as well. And what are you, just a general, you know, what tools are you using? What techniques are you following? So the end goal, besides having a specimen that is clean, is to make sure that we can get our liquid plastic down into it and consolidate the specimen. So in removing clays, we're just using toothbrushes and then Q-tip and alcohol to remove the clays. Other tools, dental picks, etc., to remove concretions. And then ultimately, consolidating it in a liquid plastic. Okay. And then it's off to collections. Yep. Very cool. And Davis... You do a lot more with the really tiny stuff. Yeah. Obviously, everybody here does a little bit of everything. Yeah. 
what is the work like in this lab when you're working with tiny things? You're, you're hanging over the microscope a lot of the times. Sean tends to use tweezers to manipulate smaller objects. I find it's uh, a little bit easier for myself to use my fingers and tweezers in conjunction. A lot of the stuff that you're doing micro prep wise is simply gluing a long bone together that's been fractured. There are a lot of small mammal jaws, shrews, moles, rodents that need their teeth put back in place. We use insulin needles to apply really thin micro glue. Okay. You can use, yeah, you're dealing a lot with surface tension and stuff like that. You can create, when you're using an insulin needle to set a tooth in, say, a mole jaw, you'll create a little beach ball. Just squeeze out a little bit of a little bit of glue, put it at the base of the tooth, and the capillary action will suck the tooth down into the down into the alveolus. So gluing, gluing and consolidating is very different when you are working with, as Shaley said, proboscideans and tapirs, yeah. versus when you're dealing with tiny mammals or the stuff that I like, which is the snakes yes, and lizards exactly. and little things. I've, yeah, I've done plenty of frog vertebrae and snake vertebrae that have been broken in half or into three parts. It, it's a whole different world. I mean, you're scaling down several orders of magnitude, so you have to watch out. Uh, like I said, you have to watch out for capillary action and surface tension, stuff that you don't even really think of when you're doing macro prep, when you're gluing together a elephant metapodium. Right, right. The glue yeah. will act very differently. Oh, yeah. The consolidant will act very differently. Yeah, definitely. At a different and, scale. And, you, and you, need, you need different ratios of solvent to plastic if you're using that stuff. Right. I tend to make my own micro-adhesive that's a little bit thinner than what Shaley uses. It's also a different solvent base. It's alcohol-based rather than acetone. Acetone just evaporates too easily. So you, you make your glue a little bit thinner than you'd like, and then mm -hmm. you can sit it under the under the scope slight until it's the until it's the viscosity that you want for your application. Excellent. So just a, just a bunch of little tricks like that. Yeah, yeah. And now I, I understand about that a lot of the work that gets done in this lab is techniques that are being developed, that you're sort of discovering what works and, like you said, making your own mixtures. Yeah. So what yeah, So what sort of are, are there techniques? Now, Shaylee, you've been here for several years. Mm -hmm. Are there techniques that you have perfected, things that you've discovered on your own, mixtures you've made? On my own, not so much. There are things that I saw and heard about being used on other specimens like the humerus, things like spider webbing with the butvar, mm -hmm. forming a very, very delicate lattice work to hold together things that otherwise would, with the weight of gravity, actually pull themselves apart, even with your flat glue joints. Right. You have to weave very delicate little webs of glue to hold them together. Another thing I've been making liberal use of with cranial recently has been bubble welding, <laughs> which is placing a little bubble of butvar at the base of something. Say you've got a tooth missing its root, and you need to hold it a significant amount above the jaw so that it's level. Okay. Put butvar at the base and then wait for the, uh, the evaporating gases within to expand and blow the drying outside shell out, and it will form a neat little bubble. To then hold the tooth yes. up in the mm -hmm. position it belongs in. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. Now, Davis talked a bit about the challenges of working with really tiny things. You're working on the mastodon. Yes. So what are the challenges of working with the opposite of really tiny things? So time is a huge issue because the elephant is extremely large. With that comes a lot of open cancellous space. So if I say something is rather strong and I'm able to wet clean it, mm -hmm. if I clean it under the faucet, it will be two to three days before I can touch it again because okay. it will take that long to dry. 
Butte barring filling everything with liquid plastic takes, again, about a day to a day and a half, depending on how much light and heat I can get on it before it's ready to prepare again. Additionally, gluing large things like that tends to be quite difficult because if you're using that much glue, again, it takes a long time, but you can't right. walk away from it. Okay. So you might be holding two pieces together <laughs> in the exact <laughs> position for 45 minutes before you can walk away from it. Right, right. So. <laughs> I mean, this stuff just drinks consolidate, right? Like, I've seen you go yeah. through I had, jars and jars. Yes, I had one, not even the entire sternebrae, but the first sternebrae for the elephant took about half of this you know, Nalgene bottle of mute bar, which is pretty sizable. Wow. And it took, again, about half a tube of glue, which I'd say is two to three ounces yeah. of solid glue. Wow. So, yeah. So it's, it's a resource sink. Yes. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, Davis, tell me about picking. Okay, so I sort of oversee all the pickers in here. If Sean is busier, he doesn't have time to do it, I'll walk around and look at everybody's results. People approach me with identification. Since I do sorting... I know my way around what kind of microfossils you'll find here. So, for the sake of our non-familiar listeners, what is picking? And what are we picking through here? Picking is basically sifting through concentrated fossiliferous sediment Mm -hmm. and pulling out any fossil bone and any useful fossil plants. So, a unique thing about gray is that we collect every square inch of sediment that comes out of the deposit. We wet screen it, and then you get these bags. Basically, 40-pound bags get consolidated down to one-gallon plastic baggies that can be a quarter or a halfway full. Right. And um, those are under the microscope, mm-hmm. and it's yep. tweezers. And exactly. You're using, yeah. but you're using special tweezers that aren't uh, that aren't stiff. They're called bioquips, so you don't crush any of the specimens. Yes. Um, a downside to that is that they can also act as little tiny catapults because you can grab a fish vert, and it'll shoot across the room if your freezer snaps shut. I unfortunately know that very well. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So volunteers will pick under binocular microscopes. Some of them use just magnifying glasses. Occasionally I'll, I'll just do a naked eye on a tray. But the volunteers will collect all of the fossils, that, uh, and then that's where I come in, and the people that I've trained, Destiny Celeste, mm-hmm. um, we go through and we sort things out into taxon and elements. Okay. So you basically have shrews, right, right, right. whatever tooth, et cetera. Yeah. So here in the lab, we're working with, you know, big animals or your mastodons, your tapirs, mm-hmm. your bear sometimes, kind of. Rhinos. Uh, rhinos, turtles, little things. Mm-hmm. Oh, gators, going down to little yeah. things. You've got turtles and shrews and moles and now a million other tiny things yeah, that, that Josh sense. has identified, snakes and lizards. The best Sal- stuff. Salamanders, are the, salamanders. salamanders are the best stuff. Oh. That's not true. Uh, <laughs> Shaylee, what is your favorite project that you've had here, oh, or a project that stands out, or a story? The ones that stand out most in memory are the worst ones. <laughs> okay, tell us um, about this. <laughs> recently, I had probably the toughest thing I've ever worked on, which was a taper skull that was jacketed in the field mm-hmm. because it was alongside the elephant tusk. So oh, okay. this taper had been crushed by the tusk. <laughs> Had some cranial in there. It didn't look too bad in the jacket. It had been, uh, it was consolidated mm-hmm. in the jacket, so the clay was not soft clay anymore. It was plasticized clay, and uh, it soon came to light that not only had he been crushed, he had actually been folded in half perpendicular to his spine. I had some femurs <laughs> yeah. up alongside his head. So did you have to? sort out skull from limb and spine? Yes, he actually had uh, bone from his femurs crushed into his own teeth. (laughs) Um, 
And in the end of it, I ended up with a pretty decent dentary, a nice piece of brain case, which mm -hmm. inexplicably survived. I had the contents of the inner ear, all the little tiny delicate bones, despite the fact that he was absolutely obliterated, those survived. And then a partial second dentary. That's so that one stood fantastic. out just because of how time-consuming and laborious it was to get all of that out. Absolutely. Davis, do you have a, a story? A, a story to share. <laughs> um, or your favorite, or, yeah, or any, you I, know, what you like best. They all blend in. After, like, five True Jaws, they, they just kind of... All True Jaws look Yeah, exactly. In a similar vein to what Sheila just described, I prepped a little bird humorous that was not in great condition. It was from this rock fall event, similar area where that uh, paper painting came from. Mm -hmm. And it was... It was pretty horrendous. I'm surprised the bones survived at all. I mean, it's birds, so it's obviously going to be very fragile. Talk. Right, right. But it was. It got to the point where I would pick up a piece of the diathesis, the middle part of the, the shaft of the yeah, the shaft yeah. of the long bone, and I mean, it would just flake apart. So I was able to get in the field. We identified the distal humerus, the shaft of the bone, but the proximal end was nowhere to be found. Mm -hmm. I was hoping I could get the shaft of the bone, which was which was pretty complete for about inch and a half. Right. I was hoping I could connect that to the distal end of the humerus, but it got to the point where the more I worked with it, the more the break surfaces were worn down and eroded away. So okay. I just consolidated everything and got a few pieces fit onto the distal head and just left them alone. Yeah. But that's that's the one that that's probably <laughs> that, the, yeah that's that's a memorable specimen. yeah that's that's pretty memorable. I should say as we wrap up that for me, one of the one of the reasons that I when Sean suggested I was really interested in the idea of talking to you two is Davis, you just graduated high school. Mm -hmm. Shaylee, you were in high school when I first met you when you were here, yes. and now you are a freshman, sophomore, sophomore mm -hmm. uh, undergraduate, majoring in this stuff, yes. and it's just so it's really cool to see that not only are Sean's you know two head lab people. Students, you know, high school, college students, which is really great. But it's also to see that, Shaylee, you have now risen up from where you were yes. before to be kind of sort of in charge. And also just the way that the two of you talk about this stuff is very, you would, this conversation would fit right in at any academic conference, which is what we're at right now, in fact. Yeah. You know, you, you know, you really have dived, you've really dived into this stuff. Uh, and, you know, it, this this lab is not just a place for preparing fossils. It's a place for preparing scientists. Yeah, exactly. Like you guys are. Yeah, I mean, it was, I think for both of us, we weren't, we didn't come in here anticipating an academic career in paleontology. Mm -hmm. um, Shaley, I know you were into... Yeah, I, I came uh, here actually to complete volunteer hours needed to graduate high school. Yep. No, out, of, out of no interest of my own. And uh, I came in here wanting to do marine bio, and within four months, I had changed my major, my college plans, and had done a complete 180. And oh, yeah. I was going into yeah, exactly. Like I mean, I, I've always had, um, since I was a little kid, I've always had a passion for evolutionary biology and fieldwork, mm -hmm. and I wanted to do um, evolutionary biology with an emphasis on fieldwork, like working with frogs and other right, amphibians. Right. But, I mean... In a similar vein to what Shayla just said, after three or four months, I mean, it was pretty clear that I wanted to do paleo. Right, um, right. It, it, it involved evolutionary biology and it involved amphibians, things that I liked. So it, was, it really just kind of turned, turned my direction <laughs> around. That's awesome. Shaley, Davis, thank you very much. 
for joining me on this uh, very what's turning into a very special episode of the <laughs> podcast. Best of luck with the continued work. There's tons of Mastodon out there oh, yes. and other big things that I'm sure you'll both be working on. There's tons and tons of tiny things tons. for years and years and years. Yes. Find me more snakes. I will. Find you more salamanders. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank, Thank you. So there you have it. Second interview done. Yeah, and that this was a fun one because we got to see, you know, newer perspectives, but they also worked on different things. You know, Shaley was on big stuff and Davis was on little stuff. Yep. Which is cool because, you know, those have different techniques. They mentioned two things specifically that are two of my favorite, or one's my favorite thing we do at the lab, one of my favorite techniques that they use there that I just think is really cool, and the other one's more of a horrifying memory. Because <laughs> Davis mentioned the tweezers. Oh, yeah. Oh, so what he was talking about, just to really frame it for everyone out there, the tweezers we use are flexible. They're very thin-metaled. They don't have, like, sharp tips. They have a rounded end. And the mm-hmm. whole point is that if you were to pick up something with that and squeeze as hard as you could, it will bend. So you cannot crush any of the tiny, tiny fossils we have. And we have lots right. of those rodent teeth and snake vertebrae and frog and fish bones and bird limbs. Yeah. And if you use normal bathroom tweezers, you would crush them into powder every time. Yep. So these avoid that. But because they bend, if you grab it slightly weird or if you have it stuck kind of on the bottom of the plate that you the fossils are on and it bends the tweezers a little bit and then you know comes loose, it can flick those. Yep. <laughs> and when you're picking, it's annoying. And that's what I did a lot of. He mentioned the picking and that's you know what I mostly did in the preparatory lab. Because uh, I, I liked the focused little stuff. But every now and then you'd find something, you'd be like, oh, and then you'd flick it back into the pile of the rest of the stuff, and you'd have to go and find it again. <laughs> yeah. But when you're working on one of the shrew teeth or the snake bones of a species, and it suddenly flicks yeah. off the table, it's a whole different level of, of heartache. I think that every person who has worked in a fossil lab has at some point had the experience, I, it must be a rite of passage, mm-hmm. of having to carefully move the chair away yep. and get down on their hands and knees and find the fossil that fell. And the whole time, just <laughs> holding your breath so as to not hear the <laughs> of <laughs> <laughs> being crushed against the linoleum. Yep. That's that's a once in a, in a long time kind of situation, mm-hmm. but it definitely happens. Oh yeah, it's, as with anything, there are always accidents. But Shaylee mentioned a technique that she often uses, and I remember when Sean first told me about this technique, and it just kind of blew my mind the variety of uses the glue we use has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is the glue that Sean mentioned in doing the new, the, the lattice work spider webbing technique of filling in a space in the bone that he designed there in the lab. Mm-hmm. And the glue can, was all, can also be used in... Like, they can dilute it, they can make it thicker, they can do all sorts of stuff. But she mentioned the bubble technique, which is just one of my favorites. That was news to me. Yeah. I never learned that. Sean told me about it at one point, just about that it was a technique he could use, and it just blew my mind. So basically what she was describing is you create a bubble of the glue, and the surface will kind of seal a little bit because it's off-gassing. It's starting to dry, but the inside will still be liquid, and the inside of the bubble will have some of that, that gas in it and when you make bubbles on either side when you touch them the surfaces will pop but then immediately fuse together as the gas melts the surfaces of each other and then is able to start drying and so it's this way to connect things in a really delicate way 
when you need a more instantaneous hold. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just, it's once again, you're getting into the chemistry, but it's this very artistic use of the glue that I, I really like. Yeah, there's a lot of creativity yeah, in the prep work. It's very cool. You know, it's, it's like sculpting, but what you are sculpting already has a final answer. You just have to figure out how to get there without breaking it further and, you know, without you know, putting it together wrong. Yeah. The puzzle analogy is, is interesting because on the one hand, like Sean pointed out, it's not quite like a jigsaw puzzle. But on the other hand, in the more abstract sense, puzzle solving is all that prep work is. Yes. It is. You need to put this back the way it should be figure out how to do it. Yeah. It, it's it's necessity at its finest. We're not going to tell you exactly how it's going to end up looking, and we're not going to tell you how the easiest way to get there is, but we need yeah. to put it together. Got to figure it out. And like we mentioned in the interviews, techniques vary by site. They vary mm-hmm. by what you're using. This the, These two interviews were a bit, you know, like I, I mentioned this at one point in the interview, that we were talking exclusively about bones, and invertebrate prep or plant fossil prep mm-hmm. is going to be very different. But hopefully this is a general, you know, a glimpse into the fossil lab. And in fact, uh, on our blog post that will correspond to this, I will put some pictures that I took mm-hmm. for a literal glimpse into the prep lab at the Gray Fossil Site. If you ever find yourself in East Tennessee, take a swing by the Gray Fossil Site because then you can get a quite literal glimpse because our lab is windowed to the public so that you can actually watch them working on stuff. Yeah, when you're there. So t- take a visit. Tell, him, tell Sean we sent you. As we wrap up, I hope everybody had a great time. Our next episode, as always, will be a fortnight mm-hmm. from today. In the meantime, as is always the case, thank you for listening. Huge, huge thanks to Sean for sitting yes. down and talking to us. And an even huger thanks, no offense to Sean, and even huger thanks to Shaley and Davis for sitting down on what was like an hour's notice. Mm-hmm. Sean knew about this for weeks. The other two did not. Like, Sean brought <laughs> it up to them maybe an hour ahead of time. Uh, and they were kind enough to sit down and talk with me uh, right before their lunch break, which was really great. And they did a great job. Big thanks to them. Big thanks to the listeners for joining us and listening once again. As is always the case, we will have a blog post about this on our WordPress blog. If you want to follow up with us more, you can follow us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, you can email us questions, comments, concerns, other stuff, suggestions for episode topics at commondescentpodcast at gmail.com, reviews on iTunes and Podbean and Stitcher and all the other wonderful things. Uh, once again, big thanks to all of our patrons on Patreon. Mm-hmm. As a reminder, patrons get special bonusy things. Uh, they don't get special educationy things. All the educational main stuff stays free for everybody on yes. the podcast. But patrons do get extra little bonus goodies. So if you feel like supporting the podcast financially, take a look over at Patreon if you are so inclined. And I think that's it. I think so. That's welcome to Fossil Prep, everyone. Indeed. More on this if people want to hear more. Eventually. Eventually. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. For more from us, you can follow us on the Common Descent Podcast Twitter account, Facebook page, or on our WordPress blog where we post additional cool stuff for each episode. 
The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome. You can find this and other video game remix music at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope to see you next time. Thank you.